Hi, and welcome to the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Stewart, an art historian and contributing writer for My Modern Met. As always, we're back with another in-depth artist interview to open up your imagination and inspire your dreams. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the food we consume, globalization, and garbage. That's right, I said trash. These are the topics that have long fascinated American photographer Greg Siegel, and this fascination culminated in his two groundbreaking series, Seven Days of Garbage and Daily Bread. In each series, he had people either save their trash or ask children around the world to record what they ate during the course of a week. In both cases, participants were then photographed lying in what they consumed or threw away, which forced them, as well as us, to consider our own daily habits. So take a listen, and I guarantee that the next time you're taking out the trash or packing your kid's snack for lunch, you'll be thinking a lot more about the impact that you're having on the planet. Okay, Greg Siegel, it's great to have you here with us. Uh, We're very excited to have you with us on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's great to be with you. First question on most people's mind is how have you been over the past few months? I mean, it's been a strange time. Well, (laughs) you know, it has, but I'd have to say there's kind of a silver lining. But, um, you know, it's just been this opportunity to do, do things that I wouldn't have had time for otherwise which is kind of nice. And, and uh, so, um, you know, I've been doing some painting and, and some writing and um, I wrote a screenplay, which wow. <laughs> I hadn't done in, in, in a couple of decades at least. Um, you know, it's, some, it's something that I, I went to school for, you know, and, and that, that had been my focus for a while. Part of my life was playwriting and screenwriting. But uh, so anyway, and, and, and the screenplay kind of touches on some of the themes I've, I've explored in my photography. So it's been just another kind of avenue to pursue my interests in. Well, that's great. So it sounds like you've made the most of your, your time. Um, yeah. I mean, I, when it all came down, I was in, I was in um, England. I was doing a project in Bristol for uh, a piece on recycling to, to promote recycling in England. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I photographed people surrounded by lots of uh you know, recyclables, <laughs> you know, electronics, right? Um, which was kind of a riff on my, my garbage project. But anyway, yeah. And so I, I came back and made it back to LA just as the, every, the world was, was shutting down. And um, yeah, and I, I, I planned to do a, a big project this summer, which kind of necessitated interacting with lots of people um, which became impossible to do, of course. And so I did have to pivot. And I, yeah, as I say, I, I was, I, you know, did some painting and some, some writing and, uh, I'm working now on a, a project that I'm not supposed to talk about because it hasn't ah. <laughs> actually been initiated yet, but, but it's, uh, anyway, and I'm, I'm doing a, a test shoot for that. And it involves, um, some photo illustration, some actual sort of drawing stuff and painting stuff and creating a, a wallpaper, uh, unique wallpaper backgrounds for the, the subjects that I photograph. Um, and I've, I've always been interested in, um, you know, I, I, I once photographed um, Robert Evans, this, this legendary Hollywood film producer. Right. Yep. And, and when I was shooting him, he, he told me, you know, we were talking about the pictures I was taking. And he said, don't forget, background is foreground. And that sort mm-hmm. of stuck with me. Um, and so, yeah, and, and in the pictures that I did with, uh, you know, the kids and the food, the daily bread project. Right. 
I put a lot of thought into what the kids were laying on, you know, the fabrics. Um, and I wanted them to kind of make reference to the cultures that the kids came from or their personal interests. And uh, so I'm doing a project that involves backgrounds and I'm actually creating, making wallpaper for the wow. backgrounds and kind of designing it myself. So, so this has been an opportunity to, to um, explore those and develop those skills. Well, yeah, just hearing about the projects you're doing, you, you mentioned that you had studied mm -hmm. dramatic writing, and that was actually something that I wanted to touch on because your background, your educational right. background is pretty varied. I mean, you also studied education um, and photography and sort of how did how did those weave their way into your photography, you feel? Well, I mean, I photography has always been kind of my way of seeing the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I had kind of a sort of a bumpy, disjointed childhood. And we were moving all the time. And my mother was married several times. And there's sort of lots of divorces involved. And, and photography was this kind of um, way of giving my life some solace and some order, you know, and to be able to kind of put a frame around something and isolate it, you know, separate it from, from the chaos was really just a very kind of, um, I don't know, very soothing, I guess you could say, and, and gave, gave, gave meaning to my life in a way. So, and it, and it kind of gave me license to be creative and, and to be curious and, and, you know, an opportunity to kind of focus my impressions. So where did you get your first camera from? I mean, was it a, was it a family member or how did that happen? Um, it, it seems like, a, yeah, I think you know, my mom, I think gave me a camera and I was about 10 years old and um, yeah, just to be able to kind of, point the camera at something and isolate it, put a frame around it. And, you know, it just, it was very <laughs> consoling in a way, I guess. Um, and that's just the way I saw the world. And, um, you know, from, from an early age, I was curious about, about garbage. And I, I know that's something you were going to ask me about because it's something that I've, I've been interested in. Um, and we had a neighbor across the street from us where I was growing up in New Jersey. And it seemed like every week they would, they would put out, like a mountain of, of garbage. And as a little kid, I kind of was wondering where, where was all, all that garbage going to end up? Yeah. You know? and, and <laughs> so it's something that, that, um, that I've been kind of fixated on for a good deal of my life. Um, and, um, you know, I've done several projects that connect to, to consumption and waste. And, uh, I did a piece called detritus. Yes. <laughs> And I kind of invented this character named Detritus, who is kind of the manifestation of all of this stuff that we throw away. And then it kind of reforms itself in our own image and shadows us wherever we go. And so at the time, I think it was about 2007, 2008, I was doing a lot of travel with, with assigned work. And um, I went to, uh, to China and Japan and Korea and, and elsewhere. And I would bring this detritus character with me. I'd stuff them into my cases of equipment and get them out and, and then photograph them in the streets of Tokyo or in Shanghai. And um, so it was an opportunity to, to kind of make it a global piece on, on consumption and waste. That's great. So you've always sort of balanced, it sounds like commissioned and personal work because I mean, you've done a lot of work for great clients like Fortune, Wired, ESPN, Mm -hmm. lots of campaigns and, you know, doing a commission versus, versus a personal project, I imagine takes, I don't want to say different skill set, but 
you know, it's a different, if it's a different animal, so was doing those personal projects, sort of stuffing them in, how did that, did that sort of keep you inspired or what was the impetus to be trying to do that? Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's rewarding, of course, to, to, to do sign work um, and, and necessary to pay the bills. But uh, I, I've always on the side done my own personal projects, which I have you know, managed to publish or, or exhibit. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I would take the opportunity to piggyback personal projects on assigned uh, jobs, when I, especially when I'm traveling. Um, and build in a couple of days, you know, extra to, to pursue my own work. But um, yeah, so that's, that's, uh, and, and the personal work has, has kind of taken a bigger role, I think, as I've, as I've gotten older, and, and it's been, mm-hmm. it's been um, also a way to support myself, uh, as in addition to fulfilling my, my creative urges as, as well. So. Well, that's great. I mean, I think that's, that's the dream of many creatives now to be able to do yeah. Do what you love and have it, you know. Yeah, and I think it's really I think it's it's more challenging than ever in a way to kind of penetrate with with your work because there's so many there's there's so many visuals competing for our attention constantly and there are lots of interesting projects being done. So to really Well, it's sort of the it's the double-edged sword of social media, mm-hmm. you know, that or or visibility right. that on the one way you can sort of you know, bypass a lot of barriers and let your work out. But on the other hand, it just sort of floods, floods the market. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and, uh, 15 years ago, I would never have been able to have an audience the way I am able now. I mean, it's to be able to have a client in Germany and just send off pictures in an instant. I mean, that's just fantastic. But also, as you say, you know, (laughs) there's a lot that you're competing with for people's attention. So, so how do you think that, I mean, but like you said, you, you've been very successful with those personal projects. So what do you think it has been that's sort of set, um, set that apart that's allowed you to cut through the noise? Well, I mean, I think it's the key is to have a point of view and to be, to say something that is, um, meaningful, um, and you know, a visual point of view and a conceptual point of view and those kinds of, uh, those things are married. <laughs> oftentimes in, in the approach that you take, but, um, you know, and, and so for instance, um, and I, I think it's just kind of going for the jugular too, is one way I think of it, um, is to kind of, you know, you want your pictures to have what I call stopping power. You know, it's, it's someone's flipping through a magazine or walking down the street and the picture just kind of grabs you and forces you to take notice and, and consider, it's subject. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think your point of view is very strong. I mean, I think especially when you look at um, specifically seven days of garbage and daily bread, um, you know, they're very strong visual with sort of the aerial flat top view, the very strong background mm-hmm. of materials and, and the people. And I think that's really um, very recognizable and very sharp as your, as your perspective. I mean, how did you decide on, using that perspective, I mean, I guess starting with Seven Days of Garbage, which was sort of the first of this this type of series. Right. Well, I just wanted it to be as clear and, uh, you know, incisive as possible visually. And so if you wanted to see the garbage, the best way to do it is to have that bird's eye perspective of the camera 
directly overhead of the subject looking down so that you can clearly see all the garbage. Um, so that's that it's just the approach suited the message and and um, and that's what kind of dictated how I how I approached it. So for those who may not be familiar with the series, um, this is a series where you asked are started with friends and neighbors and then I believe spread out to others and asked them to collect their garbage for a week and then basically pose in it. They would be sort of laid down and to be arranged around them. And we'll have some of these photographs on um, the podcast Instagram so you can check them out. Um I have to say, how did you convince people to lay in their garbage? That's very, that's my first question. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, um, well, I think some of the people, I mean, obviously I approach people who felt like the message was a, was a, a valuable one right. and were willing to, to kind of right. get a little dirty themselves in order to help tell the story. Um, you know, and I, I have to admit some people I actually paid to, uh, to lay in their garbage, mm-hmm. who, who didn't necessarily find the, the message <laughs> to be a, a, enough enough to convince them. Yeah. Um, so that. do you think that, um, I mean, do you feel like some of them were surprised by what they saw? Because I do feel like it's one of those things where you, oh, yeah. and I guess this is the whole point, we consume and we consume and you're not really paying attention until it's thrown in your face. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the whole idea. Well, that's it. Yeah. I mean, garbage is, is out of sight and out of mind. I mean, we, we consume stuff. I mean, we go get our lunch and particularly now with COVID and everything's in disposable containers and we, we eat something. And as soon as we're done, we toss it and it's no longer our problem. It's, it's for someone else to, to deal with. And I, I, I think we just, you know, the problem seems so enormous. It's beyond our, our grasp or it's, it's something that we can't, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not responsible because we're not the ones, you know, producing the, you know, it's, it's a kind of a funny duality because, and I think this is what makes people uncomfortable with the pictures, particularly here in the U S is that the subject in the photographs is both, you know, let's say a victim on the one hand, but also a perpetrator. And, you know, that's kind of an uneasy, uh, combination. Um, here in the U.S., there there is there is a diminishing sense of of community and a shared experience and common interests, um, which is tragic. I think. Continuing on here, so you do the seven days of garbage, and then a few years later, you move on to daily bread, which is, you know, your series. You just published a book in 2019 about it. Uh, children from around the world posing with their diets this time. So we move from garbage to food. And how did that evolve? And how did that sort of come into being? Well, you know, the garbage project to me is kind of like, um, is kind of like instant archaeology, you know, where the, the stuff that we throw away tells a story about not only you know, what we're, what we're consuming, but, but our values and, um, you know, it, what we consume and what we throw away, tell a story about not only our health, but the health of the planet. And so, you know, they're kind of interconnected. And what struck me really about the garbage wasn't the stinky stuff, you know, the, the, the food waste, it was really the packaging, uh, the vast amount of plastic that comes with yeah. our, a lot of the food that we buy. 
Yeah, when you look at it, I mean, when you look at the images, it is a lot of packaging, a lot of paper, a lot of plastic, more than anything else. Yeah, and so I was struck by that, and it started me thinking, well, how is this revolution, really, in the way that food is produced and consumed over the past couple of generations, how is that impacting diet? Um, And I thought, well, it would be interesting to ask people, instead of saving their garbage for a week, keeping track of everything they eat for a week. And I decided to focus on kids because, you know, eating habits form when we're, when we're young and they last a lifetime, you know, and if you don't sort of get it right by the time you're nine or 10, it, it becomes much more difficult to change your habits as you get older. And so I started in my backyard again in Altadena, mm-hmm. <laughs> photographing my son and friends of his from school, and then kind of broadening out to other parts of Los Angeles. And I kind of quickly realized that this was a, the story was was a, a global one uh, when it comes to diet. And really the, the main theme that I was interested in, in looking at was how has globalization impacted diet? Mm-hmm. And of course, <laughs> okay. So you decide to take things international and how, how do you make the leap there? Because it's, you know, I think sometimes we see these projects and it's great to see them finished, but you know, it's a lot of work to get all of a sudden go from your own backyard to boom, be in, you know, Malaysia or Dubai and, you know, find a kid with the food, you know, so how did that, how did that happen? Yeah. Well, that was a matter of just networking really and finding a producer in each of the countries that I visited uh, who could kind of do some street casting for me and find kids uh, so that by the time I showed up, we already had uh, several children and, and they'd, they'd already kept their journals for a week. And, you know, I would have to hire uh, cooks to to reproduce all of the foods that the kids had written down okay. in their journals. And so that was a kind of a, <laughs> a daunting undertaking, um, you know, because you, you would photograph, I would photograph four or five kids a day. And if you multiply, you know, how many meals is that that have to be reproduced for the one day shoot? And so it was a long day. We'd have th- about three people working 12 hours to to generate all of that, the food and to, you know, to do it accurately, which was key. Wow, that's incredible. So, I mean, how how did you decide on the countries that you were going to go visit? Because, I mean, you, you did a huge number of continents as well. I mean, how did you focus in? Well, I mean, it was, yeah, well, I wanted to... Um, I chose countries that, um, well, first of all, I wanted to, to kind of hit the, all the continents. So to have Europe represented and Africa and South America and the Middle East. Um, so that was one one goal. But also I wanted to, to photograph in countries where, that had seen kind of some of the most dramatic changes in diet over the past couple of generations. So for instance, um, you know, uh, Diabetes was a disease that, that barely existed in the Middle East, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and, and now it's, it's an enormous problem, you know. And um, Brazil is a country that, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, kids weren't getting enough to eat. And now 57% of the population is either overweight or obese. And a large part of that is just that, that globalization and, and um, the kind of processed packaged foods that, that have saturated the markets. So, I mean, is that what you, was that a big takeaway for you in seeing what food products were, were you surprised by how many food products were sort of across the board? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was, that was, uh, that was the kind of the eerie thing about this is that, 
you know, you photograph a kid in, you know, Sicily and he's, <laughs> his diet is remarkably similar to a kid I photographed in Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, both kids are eating pizza and pasta and hamburgers and French fries and ice cream and Coca-Cola. I mean, it's the same stuff. Um, you know, I have the same multinational corporations marketing the same branded foods, you know, all over the world. And so, and, and it's, it's really the exception where you find, uh, little pockets <laughs> that have not been overrun by that, that, you know, or the supply chains haven't been set up yet, you know? And so where did you feel like that, that happened? I mean, I'm looking at a picture now of um, one of the children from Malaysia and he has very authentic looking food surrounding him, but there's a pack of Oreo right. cookies up there in the corner and, a, and, and, and some McDonald's if I, if I take a look. Yeah. yeah. yeah you see the, the, the fast food. Well, it was interesting too, to, that, you know, here in the U S um, you know, the poor, the poorest people are generally the biggest consumers of, of fast food because it's, it's affordable sure. and, and, it's, Cheap. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, also convenient. Um, but then, you know, in Mumbai, India, it costs like $13 for a, a medium Domino's pizza, which is way beyond the means of, of, you know, most of the people that I met. Um, you know, and in fact, there's a girl named Anshal who lives in a, uh, an eight by eight foot aluminum hut on a construction site and her father earns less than $5 a day. So, you know, he'd have to work three days to buy, you know, a Domino's pizza. Right. Um, and yet, yet on child's diet is actually pretty wholesome and nutritious. I mean, she's eating okra and cauliflower curries and uh, lentils, which are really nutritious. And uh, her mother is, is makes the roti the, the bread that they eat by hand on the floor of the hut with a, a single kerosene burner, you know? And so, uh, there isn't any, uh, processed packaged foods in their diet, except for, you know, occasional bag of chips or that sort of thing. But, but, you know, the nuts and bolts of the, the meal are, are all homemade and, and nutritious. Well, yeah, I mean, it is very interesting that in many countries sort of clean eating or healthy, you know, is, is seen as being a luxury or, you know, you've got to be rich to do it. Where if you look at many countries, right. it's, no, that's, yeah. that's what we have. Yeah. It's a status symbol. So, yeah. So I read this study by Cambridge university, uh, in which they ranked diets around the world from, from least to most nutritional. And I was kind of shocked, uh, initially to, to read that nine of the 10 countries are in Africa. Um, which is kind of a, a, a big disconnect that, you know, among the poorest countries, but have the best, the most nutritional diets. But when you, when you look at what, what they're eating, it makes sense because it's, you know, fresh vegetables and fruits and nuts, seeds, legumes, uh, and very little, you know, small amounts of meat and very little processed packaged foods. Uh, so that's, you know, <laughs> Uh, so I decided to photograph, to go to Senegal, which is one of those 10 countries. And I photographed in the capital, Dakar. And so there were more children there who were exposed to more processed foods and more junk foods and fast food, et cetera. And how was it working, working with the children? I mean, obviously I'm sure in some of the countries you're, you're in places where, you know, you don't speak the language. Um, obviously, right. they don't have experience. They're not models, professional models. Um, you know, there are definitely some variables. Oh, there. yeah. We're all, I mean, there's certainly, um, 
you know, I mean, when I would go to a country, I would find a local crew. And of course that crew would, would be uh, able to communicate with the kids. If I wasn't uh, being an American, I'm, I'm not particularly uh, gifted or, or exposed to, to languages. I mean, I, I just haven't really had the necessity to speak other languages. But yeah, so so yes, I was able to. I mean, the communicating with the kids was was not the biggest problem I had. I mean, the technical issues were were often far more challenging. Um, so, <laughs> because for this project, I mean, everything has to be uh, replicated pretty consistently in order for the pictures to have a consistent look. And so the camera has to you know be about twelve and a half feet over the subject, and I'm shooting with a fixed focal length of fifteen millimeters. Um, and, and, you know, and, and so if you, if you show up in a place and you're in a studio and the studio ceiling isn't high enough to get the camera 12 and a half feet up, which is, was the case when I was in Senegal in Dakar. And so, um, we had to go up on the rooftop and, you know, improvise. So then you're dealing with the sun impacting the, the, the exposure, you know, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And the lights that you get that don't work right. And they don't, they don't fire when you, when you shoot the picture. And, and so it was really stressful and, and, and difficult, but, uh, and then what was the process of turning it then into a book? Because I mean, that's a whole other animal. Um, well, I, uh, let's see, I was a co I was approached by a couple of publishers. The first one wanted me to fund the, um, the cost to foot the cost of, of publishing the book and which is pretty typical now, I guess with photo books because photo books really don't make much money or any money sometimes. So, you know, it becomes almost a vanity project where the photographer, you know, is, <laughs> is kind of has to come up with the, the funds. But then uh, Powerhouse Books uh, approached me and they actually, you know, uh, gave me an advance and, um, and I didn't have to pay any, any costs out of pocket, which was, which was great. Uh, because at that point, I had already kind of spent everything that I was able to spend on the project and, and couldn't, have, right. couldn't have got a book on my own. That's great. I mean, it's also grown in, in other ways. Um, we spoke earlier this year about Undaily Bread, which was a project you did um, in Colombia and following the plight of Venezuelan refugees in Colombia and sort of doing a little bit of a twist, similar, a little bit of a twist on, on Daily Bread. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. Yeah, um, I was approached by this um, young guy at, a, at an ad, ad excuse me, at an ad agency in, in Bogota. And he, he had seen the daily bread pictures and wanted to have me come over there and, and work on a project raising awareness about the plight of uh, Venezuelan refugees. He, he's Venezuelan. Um, and he thought that this, these visuals would really kind of incite people to, to you know, kind of trigger their empathy, really. And so we decided to... Um, we work with the United Nations Refugee Agency in, in uh, Colombia and photographed Venezuelan mothers and children who had made the trek um, to Bogota uh, with the food that they ate during that trip and also with the things that they brought from home. Um, and both of those elements, the food and the personal effects, were, were very um, scarce. Right. I mean, you see, it's a much more obviously pared down and minimal, um, yeah. minimal look. I mean, how, 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 how was this shoot? How was this project different for you? Well, it was kind of shocking for me to see what 
was eaten because it was mostly just bread and water and maybe some snacks. I mean, almost nothing of any kind of nutritional value, really. Uh, I mean, just <laughs> carbs and and liquid, you know, some water. Um, and so that was really just striking to me to see that. And I think, is that really all you, you had to eat was, you know, a few a few pieces of, of bread and, and, and a bag of chips and, and some soda? <laughs> I mean, where's the, where's the nutrition? Um, and uh, yeah, and this was a part of the story that I, I hadn't really told with Daily Bread because I had been focused primarily on as I mentioned, the, the impact of globalization on diet and the kind of explosion in the consumption of packaged processed foods. But I, I really hadn't photographed anyone who just wasn't getting enough to eat. Right. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I remember photographing a girl um, who, you know, <laughs> who hadn't eaten an apple in, you know, three or four years because an apple costs 5,000 bolivias, uh, bol bolivas, I should say. And, um, and that's like $500. Wow. I mean, so obviously you can't eat an apple if it costs $500. Yeah. And, and I just remember her in the studio in Colombia and she had an apple and it's just, she must've been so excited. So eating. Yeah. Yeah. A nice crunch of that apple. So satisfying to hear. Well, it is an interesting and, and overlooked side of the coin. I mean, I think, you know, oftentimes when we um, hear about refugees, you know, we hear about them in different, obviously, sad or insightful ways that try to make us scared, you know, and I think these images really help show uh, a humanity, you know, as you said, like, wow, that's really all you ate because I mean, they're mostly mothers with children. So, I mean, we're talking about, right. you know, small families that are coming over with, and it shows the desperation you must've had to be, to be moving. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, in some cases, families were were split up because, you know, in one case, a mother wanted her, you know, 10 year old boy to have a, a future. And so she realized that that wasn't going to happen in Venezuela. So she had to leave her adult kids and uh, and make the make the trek. Yeah. I mean, it shows the unfortunate consequences of, you know, a lot of decisions that get made. Um in the world. But I mean, it, it's, in, it's, you know, it's interesting how this has moved, you know, from sort of a personal experiment in your, in your backyard to something that really speaks to global themes. I mean, could you have imagined that when you, when you sort of first started on this journey? Uh, probably not. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it in global, in a global, you know, perspective at, at that point, but, uh, um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of, of touching a nerve and um, showing aspects of our lives that resonate with all of us. And, I mean, food is something that we all identify with, of course, and and, uh, and personal effects like uh, family photographs and, and so forth are things that are, are just cherished by all of us. So where do you go from here? I mean, I know you have your secret project that we can't talk about but in general terms you know where do you see yourself going um from from here with you know whether it's a continuation well or... yeah well the, the, i mean the secret pot i mean <laughs> um that's one thing i guess but i'm also I, I had planned to do a project on on water quality uh this summer and um that's that that'll that'll happen hopefully next spring if, if things return to normal great well, we'll keep an eye out so. for it 
Well, it was so good to speak with you today. Um, Super fascinating. And I think you're doing such important work to get people to really think about, you know, what we consume and what we're doing, what we're putting out in the world. Um, Can you tell our listeners where they can follow you and find your work? Sure. Um, I mean, I, uh, I use Instagram. I'm, I'm uh, at Greg Siegel, uh, on Instagram. And that's with two G's, and, Greg uh, with two G's. That's right. G-R-E-G-G-S-E-G-A-L. Um, and, uh, I mean, and you can find me, <laughs> um, on my website, I guess too. I have a, I have a website where I post stuff. Um, but, uh, I, I, I Twitter a little bit and, and Facebook, but, but, uh, you know, those social media can be kind of a time, time vacuum. Yes, that is true. <laughs> so, well, great. Well, we'll certainly be in keeping an eye out for your upcoming projects um, and we hope to see more from you soon. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in for another week of the My Modern Met Pop Artist Podcast. We'll be back next time to chat with another groundbreaking artist pushing creative boundaries. In the meantime, check us out on Instagram and Facebook where you can see some of the artwork we spoke about today. And if you haven't already, don't forget to stay updated on our new episodes by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. Until next time, keep reading My Modern Met to stay updated on what's happening today in art and culture.